Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are undone by your amazing grace. And we pray that that grace would flow deep within our hearts, our souls, and our minds this morning, that it would fill this room with the praises of your people. God, that we would focus our eyes on you and celebrate the goodness of Jesus that brings us into this amazing grace that forever changes us. For you, Father, deserve all the glory, for it's in Jesus' amazing and gracious name that we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you all. You may be seated. It's uh, exactly what we've come here to do is to celebrate God's amazing grace. That's why we gather. It's why we pray. It's why we sing. It's why we open up his scriptures is to be reminded that there's really nothing we can do. God receives us just as we are, right? He, he sees us with all of our imperfections, all of our failures, all of our mistakes, and he loves us, and he invites us into this incredible grace that changes us. And so if that's a grace that you've never truly received, I would encourage you to do so today. And if it's one that you have received before, I encourage you to do so today, right? That we believe in our hearts, that Jesus is the Lord, that we, we believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead and we give our lives to him so that that grace can come in and change us day after day after day. Confess that need for him and share that hope of amazing grace with everyone who you may know or come into contact with. That's what we're here to do. And I'm grateful that you've chosen this to be a place to celebrate that grace this morning. What we discovered and what we've been talking about recently is that when you encounter that grace, it, it elicits a change. It, it prompts you to some form of a response in your own life. It invites you into a life of commitment. And so we've been talking a lot about how we pursue that commitment, and we even celebrated it last week with what we have now referred to as Commitment Sunday, uh, which is something that we anticipate to be a part of our annual rhythm as a church. Every, every uh, year, a couple Sundays after Easter, we're going to have this opportunity to celebrate what God is doing in our lives, what he's doing in our church, and for us to commit to those things. And so we had a great week last week, got to celebrate uh, baptism, got to see baby dedications, got to do an often uh, awesome opportunity to celebrate and fellowship after church. Uh, one of the new things that we did was provided a survey that was intended and is intended to give you some questions to help you reflect upon how God's power is working in your life, how you can make some of those commitments and respond to his grace. Uh, I want to tell you that that survey is still available. We're going to make it available for a couple of weeks. And as I mentioned uh, last Sunday, we want you to, to make that a time of worship, you know, enter into those those uh, questions with an opportunity to really reflect upon what God is doing in your life. And I will tell you that uh, it's been so great to see some of the uh, just beautiful answers uh, that people have provided, some heartfelt prayer requests, some opportunities to see what people are feeling called towards, what they're passionate about, where God's leading them. And so I, I trust that you will be able to uh, benefit from, from taking some time to just reflect upon those things. And so we'll continue to make that available to you for at least another week or two. And so we'd encourage you to make that an act of worship. One of the other things that we did uh, last Sunday is not just talk about what is God doing in our lives but, or individually, but what is he doing in our church? And we talked about a couple of goals that we want to pursue as a church family. The, the numbers I kind of introduced to you were 220 and 200, uh, and those reflect these various arenas that we have uh, talked about many times before, arenas of discipleship, justice, and recovery. And even though we have some numerical goals that we've established for ourselves, I believe there's an inherent value in 
challenging yourself and striving for certain things, but the real goal is not necessarily numerical. It's that if we go through this season, this next year, and all of us are stirred to a greater devotion towards Jesus, that's the win, right? And that's what we're pursuing. And, it, and so it is this next year between this Commitment Sunday and next Commitment Sunday that we're trying to achieve some of these goals together. And so just as a refresher, we, we said two recovery groups, two groups focused on renewal, that we can truly be a place for healing. You can come here and, and be open and honest and say, man, I'm struggling with this. I'm, I'm dealing with this burden. And you can find an opportunity to truly uh, find redemption and reconciliation and recovery from those things. That was the two part of it. Uh, 20, uh, when we think about being a people who love justice, we wanna advocate for the orphan. Uh, that's one of the things that we're zeroing in on. We're doing more than that, but that's one of, the areas, one of the areas that will receive a certain level of focus. And so we talked about 20 individuals and or families that would come forward and advocate for the orphan. There are numerous on-ramps to do that. Uh, you can volunteer through CASA. You can become uh, a representative in kinship care, respite care. There's so many different ways to do it. Personally, I'm hoping that within those 20 folks that step forward, we have at least four or five families that are actually willing to adopt or foster as well. So that was the 20 aspect, which led us to the most ambitious part of our goal, which was 200 baptisms. This was the area of discipleship. And this is the one that's going to stretch us the most. And part of that is because the only way we achieve this is if we all take it seriously, right? There's, there's no real wiggle room for us to sit back and go, well, I'll just let somebody else pursue that one. The only way we get there is if we all do this. And, and the challenge was, can you think of at least one person in your life that, that doesn't know Jesus, that you could pour into relationally, love on them, teach them about Christ, lead, lead them into a greater understanding of who he is to the point that they would desire to demonstrate a reception of that grace through the symbol of baptism, right? And if we do that, we could see potentially 200 baptisms. So those were the numbers, 2, 20, 200. And I'm excited about what God can do in that and through that. I love just imagining what that might look like. And, and all of this is an effort for us to live into that prayer that God's power would be unleashed in our lives and in this church, this community in the world so that every tongue, tribe, and nation can come to know and proclaim the saving work of Jesus. Right? That's, that's what we're after is God's power being unleashed. That's, that's really kind of the, the reason that we're going through this sermon series and looking at these letters to the churches and Revelation is they give us reminders and tangible expressions of what that power looks like when it gets a hold of a church. And so we wanna continue that discussion today by looking at the church in Smyrna and in particular seeing how God's power helps carry us through those seasons of affliction. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter two. And just as a quick refresher, we've already talked about the church in Ephesus. So we got one down, six to go. And when we talked through Ephesus, we, we saw the words of affirmation that Christ gave to this church. Right, I see your good deeds, your hard work, your perseverance, your ability to test what is false and what is true. Yet this I hold against you. This was the word of warning. You have forsaken your first love. Right? Well, the way we described it was it was drift, right? That Jesus wasn't unimportant. He was just no longer the most important. And when that happens, we begin to slowly and steadily drift from this hope that we have in Christ and it makes us susceptible to a, an eventual wandering away from the faith. And so the remedy for this, according to Christ, was remember and repent and do. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent from your current ways. Do the things you did at first. And if you do all these things to those who are victorious, you will have the opportunity to share in the tree of life. This was the word of admonition to the church in Ephesus. And so now we move from Ephesus to Smyrna. All right, so let's take a look 
at chapter 2. We're going to read verses 8 through 11. We're only going to discuss 8 through 10 today, but let's read and see how this letter continues to the church in Smyrna. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as a victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. All right, so this is the the letter to the church in Smyrna, and as we talked at the beginning of this series, there are certain elements that you're going to find in any of these letters, right? You're going you're to see the elements of who it's addressed to, who's the one speaking, uh, this divine knowledge, I know this about you, uh, a word of affirmation along with oftentimes a verdict or, or uh, a, a thing that says this is I'm a, what I'm holding against you, a, a, some form of a warning or word of caution. And then you're going to find uh, an exhortation and a promise of victory, right? These are the elements that you typically see in all these letters. What's interesting about that is that Smyrna, there's one of those elements that's not included when you read through this letter. And, and you heard Kevin mention it in the children's time. Jesus isn't holding anything against this church. It's one of the two churches that you don't hear a phrase like that that says, hey, this I'm concerned about. This you really need to work on. Uh, but this church is going through a very difficult time. And so it's a letter that is still including a level of warning, but is really a word of encouragement and exhortation. And so what, in order for us to really understand what it is that Jesus is saying to Smyrna, it, it benefits us to really understand the context of the city where the church finds itself. That, that's true for all these letters. Every time we read a new letter, we'll take time to understand a little bit more about the city because it really does help us understand what's being written. And part of that's because cities have identities. They have a certain culture. They develop reputations, and, and that influences the people that are within them. That's true for us even today, right? If I, if I say Silicon Valley, what do you think of? It's Palo Alto, it's San Francisco, it's the tech industry, right? We know that because that city has that reputation. So sometimes those reputations lead to nicknames, but they don't have to have nicknames. If I say Los Angeles, you think of a certain culture. You think of Hollywood and fame and glitz and glam and all these things. We're used to cities having certain identities. I'm especially attuned to that given my hometown, my hometown of Abilene, Texas, which I would say often kind of goes through a little bit of an identity crisis. There are several Abilenians in here that can resonate with me. And, and a lot of times we don't know how to react to it. In fact, I remember I was in college and I was in a management class and, and I'm sitting there in this management class and all of a sudden the professor comes in one day and she says, well, today we're going to watch a video that focuses on the Abilene paradox. My ears kind of perked up and I was like, like Abilene, like my Abilene? Like, is that what we're doing? And she put, proceeds to show us this video that was made in the 80s, right? So it's terrible quality, terrible acting, but for some reason it's deemed to have good educational value. And so they show it to us. And it's these four people that are in Cisco, Texas, talking about what are we gonna do today? It's hot, what should we do? And somebody suggests, well, we should go to Abilene. And then it gives you this clip of this inner monologue where everybody that's a part of this discussion confesses internally, I don't wanna go to Abilene. That sounds like a terrible idea. But none of them say it. And so they all go to Abilene. Then the video fast forwards, they come back and they're talking about how miserable it was. It was a terrible time. And somebody's like, well, I didn't even really wanna go. And then they all end up saying this. And there's the management principle, right? The Abilene paradox. How do all these people who don't really like the idea embrace it and implement it, okay? And that's my hometown. 
okay? That's Abilene. And I was deeply offended when I watched that video, not because it implied that there isn't really anything to go visit in Abilene. I know that. Why I was offended is because the people that didn't want to go there were from Cisco. Are you kidding me, Cisco? Give me a break, man. But the point is, the point is we have this identity for each geographical location, and the church responds to it, right? It, it influences how we react and how we behave. And so we need to ask these questions every time we read this letter. So what was Smyrna's reputation? What were they known for, and how did that influence the church? Here's what we know about Smyrna. It was known for its pursuit in science and medicine, and it was an incredibly beautiful city, like known for its beautiful buildings, its incredible architecture, amazing roads, because it was incredibly wealthy. This is a city of tremendous affluence. And that's highly influential in our understanding of this letter. Right now, it's not just that it was affluent. Uh, Smyrna kind of prided itself on having a strong relationship with Rome. It consistently sided with Rome in certain situations. And so it had a certain autonomy and privileges that were given to it. And it was another city, much like Ephesus, that really prided itself on the imperial cult, which we define as the worship of the emperor. Remember that? And so when you think about emperor worship at this point in time, especially under Domitian, which was from 81 to 96 AD, it, was, it became uh, compulsory for you to worship the emperor. You had to do it. And, and this is what that would look like. Once a year, you would have to go to one of the temples and offer up a, a burning incense on the Godhead of Caesar and declare Caesar is Lord. You can see why that would be problematic for Christians. But once you did this, you would receive a certificate to demonstrate that you had actually worshiped the emperor, right? And so this was something that was very important to the folks and the residents here in Smyrna, right? And this is the context within which this church functions and exists. And so, so Jesus looks on this situation and, and addresses this church, and what we find is that this church is struggling to survive in this context, right? This is a church that is dealing with some very significant affliction, right? And so that's how I really want to work through this today is acknowledge what are the circumstances that are facing the church, why is it so difficult, and then what does Jesus offer as an encouragement to them, okay? So the first thing that we see is that Jesus says, I know your afflictions, your poverty, the slander. Right? These are the, the three things that assess their current situation. Affliction uh, means to be distressed, right? It could be tribulation, it could be persecution, it could be oppression, but it, 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 at its core means to feel distress. And that distress can be both internal or external, right? So internal distress is gonna be those feelings of anxiety and, and worry and loneliness. External distress is going to be something that you feel in hostility from enemies or illness or things that happen around you, right? And both of those were at play for the church in Smyrna. And so there are some specific examples of what these afflictions are that are facing the church, right? The first one that is mentioned here is poverty, okay? Now, this is an important word to understand, okay? Because poverty is, is a different level of, of being poor. There's another word in the Greek that implies you're poor, but you're working, and you just don't have much to, to live on. There, there's another word for that. This means completely destitute, to the point that you have to beg, right? That's the level of poverty that is uh, the reality for this church, right? This is not just, man, we don't have much. It's like we are resorting to begging, 
And, and let me just say, it's one thing to be poor in a city that's poor. It's another thing to be destitute in a city of affluence. To be constantly surrounded by these reminders of the things that you don't have and surrounded by the people that refuse to help you. And the more you begin to really understand this context in Smyrna, the more you realize that the poverty that the church is facing is intentional. It's systemic, right? It's institutionalized, it's, it's targeted, right? This isn't just based on circumstances, this isn't just the economy crash, no, this is intentional. This is the poverty that they're facing, which leads us to a better understanding of slander, right? Slander means malicious talk to revile. And, and when you begin to explore the sort of nature that relates to this slandering, we see once again that it's pointing to this conflict between the early Christians and Jews, right? You receive slander from those who claim to be Jews but are not. And, and what you have to understand about the early onset of Christianity is that because it was birthed out of Judaism, Jesus is a Jew, all those different things, there was this inner conflict that led to this division, right? There is this, on one hand, you know, new, new folks coming to follow Jesus and, and Jews would be really quick to point to the Greeks and those new converts and say, that's not associated with us. You'd also have folks that, that were Jewish Christians, right? Because Paul would go to synagogues. John would, that's where they would often start, is in the synagogue. And some of them would believe and others wouldn't. So churches, synagogues were being divided by people that they knew, people that knew one another. And so listen to how this can play itself out in this particular context, right? If, if I begin to see this, then there's some implications that the Jews and some leverage that the Jews had that they could uh, put towards the Christians. Think about it in terms of emperor worship. If you know much about the Judaic culture under Roman rule, they were afforded certain leniencies and freedoms that others weren't when it was related to their worship of their God, right? We get insights to this when Jesus is brought to Pilate by the chief priest, and what does Pilate initially say? Will you judge him according to your laws? Right, that's a quick glimpse of the fact that Jews had a certain freedom in how they would worship and who they would worship that was not mandated according to other Roman citizens. And so if all of a sudden there's this fraction that kind of develops in the church, the Jews are able to point to the Christians and say they're not with us. They can slander them towards the authorities, and that puts Christians in a position where now they are guilty of failing to worship the emperor. And if that's true, that penalty could result in death. So the slander of the Jews is increasing this marginalization of the early church that is obviously leading to some level of poverty, obviously leading to a certain threat of further persecution. So this is a very, very difficult context that is facing the church. And the minute you get your mind wrapped around all of those things, all of the the slander and the poverty, these afflictions, you hear Jesus say, and oh, by the way, there's more. It's gonna get worse. That's a hard thing to hear. And so just resonate with that for a moment. Those seasons where you feel overwhelmed with affliction, where you would give anything for you to find reprieve or relief or something, and then Jesus says, well, actually, there's more. It's going to get worse. And, and he defines it, how it's going to intensify, right? You're going to face the threat of being thrown in prison for maybe a period of 10 days. And that's, that's kind of the, 
the description of it. And so let's make sure we understand that. That reference to 10 days is not necessarily a literal 10 days. That's a phrase that can often refer to a short amount of time. And so this isn't the 40 days, 40 nights language that you see at other times in the scriptures. We know it's, it's temporary, but this persecution is going to intensify, but it will be short-lived. But be ready, because it is going to intensify. The intensification of this persecution is imprisonment. Now, I want us to understand what prison, imprisonment looked like for this particular culture and, and for the church at this point in time. Imprisonment is different for them than it is for us. A lot of times we think of prison as a correctional facility. Right? You go there and you eventually correct your behavior and hopefully get reintroduced to society. If you were imprisoned at this point in time, you were there only to be held to await trial or execution. That was it. So the threat of persecution means your afflictions, church, just elevated from poverty and slander to potential death. That's what's on the horizon. So the point is this, that the church in Smyrna is deeply afflicted, carrying significant wounds. Can you relate to those? I mean, I recognize that we're not living in this ancient context that Smyrna is, but let's think about just those seasons of affliction, seasons of distress. How do we typically see that distress manifest itself? You ever kind of research this. I looked into this a little bit more uh, this week. And so when you, when you hear this sort of affliction or distress described, maybe this applies to you. Maybe this is exactly what you're feeling today. Maybe it's someone you know. But here's typically how this sort of distress in our life, in our context, typically results or manifests itself. Is, uh, it's those seasons where we feel very overwhelmed. Seasons where we feel helpless, helpless or hopeless. Right? We we are filled with worry. Maybe there's these feelings of guilt, but we can't associate why we have that guilt. It begins to influence um, our rhythms in life, our sleep patterns. People uh, either want to sleep all day or they can't sleep at all. It results in an increased level of exhaustion and irritability. A lot of times we, we retreat into further isolation, distancing ourselves from people we know or events or places. This is typically how those manifestations of distress typically reveal themselves. And we kind of have to ask ourselves why. What, what causes that? And what most folks that are familiar with it and others that have studied it would say is that more often than not, those things result as an as a, as a experience through trauma or tragedy. And we all know that trauma or tragedy can look very different with different levels of intensity and severity. And in different arenas, sometimes that trauma comes from the work environment, right? You find yourself in a very difficult work situation, long hours, underpaid, and all of a sudden, over time, there's stress at work and, and you feel trapped, right? There's concerns about job security. Maybe you lose your job and all of a sudden, you're just trying to hold everything together by a thin thread or you just feel trapped and there's no way out and the joy you thought you would have in pursuing your life's dreams is no longer there and you have to suffer through that day after day after day. And each day you go in is like a brick being placed on your chest and giving this weight that you just can't remove. Sometimes the trauma and the tragedy is more in the home. This is usually where you find it a little bit more intensified. Marriages begin to crumble. 
You begin to say something hurtful to a spouse, they say something hurtful to you. You do something hurtful to a spouse, they do something hurtful to you. Trust is obliterated. You wake up one day and you realize that trust is not something that can be easily replaced. You can't just go down to the store and buy another dose of it. It has to be rebuilt. One brick at a time. And that takes a long time. And so sometimes we face that trauma and we think, you know, it's easier for me just to leave than to rebuild. So homes begin to crater. Sometimes it's the worry we have for our children. Right? A child or children that just rebel and rebel and rebel and go so far down that prodigal path that we spend all these sleepless nights just worried that they're okay. Sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes it's the trauma we receive from parents. The way they speak to us as kids, the way they heap abuse on us or neglect. And in all these situations, people can feel incredibly isolated and hurt in their own home. Sometimes it's external, sometimes it's the tragedy of illness, it's the diagnosis that seems fatalistic, sometimes it's from the world around us, it's the accident that we didn't see coming, it's a pandemic that wreaks havoc on us, it's the loss of a loved one, it's trauma, it's tragedy, and it creates both internal and external distress, and before you know it, you are ushered into a season of complete affliction. Does this resonate with you, someone you know? We all go through it at some point or another. Which is why what Jesus has to say to this church is so critical for us even today. How does God's power move upon those who are deeply afflicted? Well, let's consider some of the things that he says to this church. The first thing he says is, I know I know your afflictions. And can I just tell you, that's one of the most beautiful parts of Scripture. He knows. We discover that God is not some God that sits in some ivory tower demanding just blind obedience, distant from us. He looks in on this hostile world, filled with pain, filled with affliction. And what does he do? He takes on flesh and dwells among us. He embraces it and leads a path through it. And so when Jesus experiences the trauma of the cross and all of its pain and all of its suffering, what that means is that there is nothing that we experience in this world that we can't bring to him that he doesn't understand. He says, I know. I know your pain. And he says, but don't be afraid. Right? Even when there's more coming, Don't be afraid. Now that's tricky, right? When God says it's not over, there's going to be more. But don't don't worry about it. Don't be fearful of it. Because when we hear there's gonna be a more and we hear it from a God that we know could just whisk it all away, that's what leads us to a place where maybe we get angry at God. Maybe we get frustrated at God. But if we can just look a little bit more closely for a moment, at least he's honest At least he tells us what to truly anticipate. And what do you typically find in the scriptures whenever that that encouragement of don't be afraid is offered? Why is it that we can be fearless in the midst of affliction? Because he is with us. Be strong and courageous, he says, for I will never leave you or forsake you. Fear not, for I am 
with you. Something beautiful about that. You know, my kids have gone through seasons where they've been really uh, afraid of thunderstorms, right? And, and part of that's because we've found ourselves in those moments where we've been on the road and we're no longer driving in the rain, but it's like, oh my goodness, seek shelter. Or, or we've been at home and we've heard the sirens and we have to rush into the bathroom and get in the tub, right? Those are, those are scary moments, especially for kids. And as a dad, when those things happen, I don't look at my kids and go, you know what, don't worry, it's not really raining. They would see right through that. I'm honest with them. I know. But I'm here. And I'm going to be in this storm with you. There's something incredibly beautiful about that. And that's what God is saying to this afflicted church. I know your pain, but don't be afraid because I'm with you. Now, subtle underneath this are also some answers to why. Because don't we always ask that question to pain when we go through these afflictions? Why, God? Why are you allowing this to happen? How can, how can there be so much suffering in the world and him still be a loving God? Don't we ask these questions? And while that's maybe not necessarily directly addressed here, there are some subtleties that can help us find an answer. The first is the problem of evil. Jesus reminds us of the source of this affliction. Right? What does he say about the slander? Slander from those who claim to be Jews but are not, but they're really from the synagogue of Satan. And who is it that brings additional persecution? The devil. We have to recognize that there is evil in this world. And that's where the affliction comes from. What does it say to the church in Ephesus? Your war is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and principalities of the air. It is so easy that when we go through affliction to respond with hate, to respond with anger, and especially at others. It's why we have phrases like misery loves company and hurt people hurt people. But what we have to remember is that there's no room for that in the gospel. There's no room for that in the church. We don't hate others. We don't let the seed of hate and animosity and revenge take its place in our heart. No, we don't do that because we know that's not where the war is fought. The reason affliction and pain exists is because evil exists. But there's something that God can do in that affliction. There's something he can do when that evil or that pain finds us. What does he say here? There's a word there. This persecution is coming to test you. That word test means to examine thoroughly, to reveal your true character. And that's typically what happens in affliction, isn't it? I can't help but think of this from a sports Analogy, I think of a lot of things through sports analogies. That's just kind of the way I'm wired. But I think about fandom, right, and what it means to be a fan and the difference between like a fan and a fair-weathered fan or a bandwagon fan, right? And when you're truly a fan of a team, you really don't like those other guys, right? Those, those guys that come in at the last minute when things are good, the ones that leave when things are bad, right? There's no character there. There's no loyalty there. So every fan at some point is gonna go through some affliction, some suffering, the one in 15 season. I remember going to a, a, a game in OU where OU lost 55 to 19 and all my friends were walking out early, but I sat there and I watched every play, baby. Because I'm a fan. That's what affliction does. Test us. It's easy to be loyal when things are good. But when affliction comes, where will your devotion lie? 
Will you choose love instead of hate? Will you choose compassion and forgiveness instead of animosity and resentment? Will you choose Jesus? When we go through these seasons of affliction, we have this choice. I can either press into God or I can run away from him. Affliction reveals our true character. It reveals our sense of true devotion, which is why Jesus says, be faithful. That's why he's warning you. Yes, more is to come, so get ready. Stay strong, be faithful, be unmoved, even in the midst of this affliction and this heartache. Don't waver in this gospel. Stand strong, and what you discover in that faithfulness is that it's in our weakness that he makes us strong. It's in our weakness that we see how amazing his grace really is. It is there that we begin to discover the paradox of this gospel, that the world may look in and say, look at them, they're poor, but Jesus says, no, you're rich, because with me, you have more than enough. It doesn't matter what takes place in this world. That word rich is an abundance of. It's not like Jesus just gives you just a little bit enough. He gives you more than enough. The more we, we are able to embrace this hope, it prepares us for suffering, a suffering that produces endurance. That endurance further anchors us in that hope. So be faithful. The more we are faithful, the more we are able to see that there is nothing in this world that should move us. We should be able to stand unshakable amidst the seasons of affliction. And the reason we can do so is because of the one who is speaking to us. I love the way Jesus is described here in this letter. I'm the first and the last. That's a reminder. He's in control. Our perspective is limited. We only see but a short picture of it. He understands from beginning to end. Trust in his plan. But then what does he say? I am the one who was dead and brought back to life. And so if you are faithful, what is the promise that he offers you? I will give you life as the victor's crown. It was the same reward that was offered to the church in Ephesus, the tree of life. Now it's described as a victor's crown. That's the promise. That's the hope is that we can endure this world of hostility in any season of affliction because it is bound by sin and death. But there will be a day where we are ushered into everlasting life. And that's what Jesus declares. That's the essence of the gospel. That's why the cross matters the way that it matters is because Jesus is not just some good man that we follow. He is the victor over affliction. We don't just come to church to have something to do on Sunday. We gather together as those who are afflicted, serving and worshiping the one who has overcome such pain and such affliction so that we can gather together and share our wounds, share our scars and say, look what Jesus did for me. Look at the valley he walked me through. He can do the same for you if you let him. That's how this all begins to work in a powerful way within the church. And so let me, let me just say, um, it's one thing to read it and to study it. It's another to live it. I don't know how many of you know this, but stand before you today as one afflicted. Familiar with distress. 
I've had those sleepless nights of worry. Just a couple months ago, sitting there crying out to God to save my dad. And it hurt. And in that moment, you know what I heard God say? I know. I know it hurts. Jeremiah, there's more to come. And I knew this was probably it. It was so difficult. But right there, I also heard God say, but I'm going to be with you every step of the way. And can I tell you, church, he has been, and he will be. He's walked me through my valleys. I'll walk you through yours if you let him. So where are you? Some of us, we listen to sermons like this and we think, gosh, I don't don't know if I've really gone through anything like that yet. The afflictions I've endured have been minor. I understand that. So maybe the question is, are you building that foundation so that when that season comes, you will stand strong. You will be faithful. Some of us, you're like me, it's current, it's recent, it's fresh. And you just need to be reminded that you're not alone. He's walking with you. Some of us, our seasons of affliction, we've held on to for many years. We still bear their scars. We still think about those wounds. We're still trying to figure out how to navigate life as a result. Here's the point. Regardless of where you are, regardless of when or how it may have occurred, none of it is meaningless. All of it can be meaningful. Because what the scriptures tell us is though outwardly we waste away, inwardly we can be renewed day by day that the distress we feel in this life is actually light and momentary when compared to the glory that it is achieving in us. So it's not wasted. It's not meaningless. All of it, every tear, every moment, every valley, every second of that distress is meaningful. If You allow him to comfort you, and you give him the glory through it all. That's where we find the beauty and the amazing grace of this gospel, that in our weaknesses, we remain strong. And so that's what I want us to do as we end our time together this morning, is to come before our God and our King as afflicted people, confessing distress, or maybe in this moment you want to lift up somebody that you know is in this season. 
and entrust it to him. To find comfort in the fact that he knows. To be courageous. To allow it to refine you and sharpen you to remain faithful as you hold tightly to the anchor of everlasting life that awaits. So that anything we face in this world, we can endure if we give him the glory. So why don't you just bow your heads, close your eyes for a moment. Here's how we're going to close our time. We're just going to end in a season or a moment of just personal prayer. A lot of times at the end of a service, we'll stand and we'll sing and we'll respond. And while this is heavy to think about seasons of affliction, there's some power in surrendering those moments and giving God the glory that can be so uplifting and freeing. And that's what I want. I want you to be set free from those burdens. I want you to acknowledge those afflictions, bring them to God, and then commit to give him the glory through it all. No matter what we face in this world, we'll give him the glory. Father in heaven, that's our prayer. And so as we enter into this time of worship and contemplation, we acknowledge our own wounds, we acknowledge the wounds of others. And we resolve to one another that no matter the valley that we walk through, no matter the distress that we may encounter, we keep our eyes focused on you. We give you the glory. May we be found faithful in our love and our devotion to you. It's in Jesus' name.